0: yeah hi. In this episode we say it's episode 30. It's not. It's episode 28. This really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, but we can't count. Anyway, enjoy the show. Hey, welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast about philosophy made accessible for listeners i'm andrew's former philosophy teacher derek parsons
1: and i'm mr parsons former philosophy student andrew graziano welcome to episode 30 where we continue our series on stoic thinkers with everyone's favorite senatorial stoic Seneca. but before that mr parsons how you've been doing spring break is over
0: spring break is over uh but spring is not it's beautiful and in the air you know, this week, I saw for the first time in our garden, monarchs, monarch butterflies. They're migrating through right now. So I've seen, uh, I've seen a couple every other day. But other than that, I mean, the big news is that my birthday was last week. It's celebrated in uh, many countries around the world, but not formally recognized in the United States. I just wanted to point out the, the many other very interesting things that happened on my birthday, which is March 25th. So here we go. Of course, it is also the birthday of the great Elton John. I can't believe he shares my birthday. Amazing. But other nerdy cool stuff. Uh, If you're into Lord of the Rings, March 25th is a big day. It is the day that Sauron was defeated. The ring was destroyed. For all my Catholic friends out there, Feast of Annunciation, baby! Is March 25th also, um, which there is a connection between that and uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. He, he used March 25th on purpose um, as the day that Sauron died. Huh. So anyway, all silliness aside, students were super nice to me at school <laughs> on my day. They threw me a party. There was cake and everything, which, which was very sweet. So that's my update. How are you, Andrew? What's going on?
1: I'm good. I, I did not know Lord of the Rings. I do I do not know anything about Lord of the Rings so I did not know that <laughs> and I did not know that um J. R., G., J. R. L. Tol- Tolkien Oh god bless J R R Tolkien <laughs> J R <laughs> I did not know that J R R Tol- Tolkien was such a, a date guy so that's interesting too
0: Oh yeah like we could do a whole episode on J R R Tolkien
1: <laughs> I don't know I think I'm more of a Harry Potter guy but uh Oh, uh, yeah. I've never actually read it before, so maybe uh, no. that's Who on my that? reading list.
0: Well, J.K. Rowling. What is it JK with Rowling. British people uh, abbreviate <laughs> like C.S. Lewis? What's going on with that? It's just those British people. Yes. A.A. Milne. That's a Winnie the Pooh. Oh, my goodness.
1: Wait, did we even do we even we haven't even talked about your life. No, that's OK. Nothing. Nothing really new. It's just the terms winding down. So that's fun. I think yeah, by the time this episode comes out, um, Rice will have done beer bike, which is our one claim to fame. I think it's basically it's not what it quite what it sounds. It's based on this old tradition of basically bike races while people are drunk, but it's not really like that anymore. It's just like Rice is super into bike <laughs> racing, so basically, the one day a year, all the residential colleges race each other and bike uh, they have like a bike race so it's super cool it's like super big deal people at rice start training like before school starts every year so super big bike culture at rice bigger than definitely like way bigger it's like our biggest sport biking is like our biggest sport so it's way bigger than football and basketball and anything so it's it's like a huge huge deal huh yeah
0: that's really interesting because rice is located in such a heavy urban area Yep. And Houston, as with the rest of the United States, is not well known for its bike-friendly nope. motor vehicle no, not, awareness. Not at all. So that's that's really interesting. So is it like exclusively on campus, or is it like a big old route throughout the no, city? No, it's,
1: it's, it's basically all on – it is all on campus. We have our own like bike track near the back of campus. And then, yeah, they kind of had one last year, but they didn't allow people to like go to the track so i guess they didn't really have it but yeah i know like i know people have been training all throughout the year so it's gonna be super fun definitely a good time on our last episode of the open door philosophy podcast we began a four episode series on stoicism one of our favorite topics at open door philosophy And one of the most popular, one of the more uh, popular topics, I think, in just like contemporary, philosophical, popular life. And so last week we did kind of an intro on Stoicism, what it was, what it wasn't, popular conceptions of it, why it was so popular. So if you haven't given that episode a listen, check that out before coming to this one. On that last episode, we identified three of the most famous Stoic philosophers. There's a lot more, but they are... Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, and Epictetus, those are out of order, but that's the order that we're going to be doing them in. And so today, we are starting on our deep dive into Seneca.
0: So as Andrew said, referenced in that previous episode, I talked about the era of Hellenism, which is when Stoicism began as a philosophy. And so one of the things I wanted to point out when we're talking about Roman Stoics is that during the greek period classical greek period before hellenism where you have the pre-socratics socrates aristotle plato the whole crew and even really in the era of hellenism when you have those schools that developed like cynicism and and stoicism and epicureanism uh, those were schools that were new right like like that was new philosophy or new philosophical viewpoints and theories and entire systems that were developed and worked out. But when we get to the Roman Republic, and especially the Roman Empire, the development of new philosophical systems really kind of goes on pause, if you will. Now, that's not to say that the Romans weren't philosophical. They most certainly were in their approach to living and life. So one thing to point out uh, before we like get into these guys, which were just wonderful thinkers, is that Roman philosophy really shouldn't be considered a time period where they're creating new philosophy or philosophical systems. What they're doing is practicing the philosophy. And that's why these philosophers, these thinkers that we're going to look at are so influential because even though like coming up with philosophical systems is very interesting, living out those philosophical systems is really like what it's all about in a way. And so these thinkers, Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, and Epictetus, had the opportunity to live out those philosophies. And so we'll see that there's really nothing new that Seneca says as far as Stoicism, but it's how he lived his life according to Stoic principles that are interesting today.
1: That's exactly right. That's something we're going to see throughout pretty much all of these thinkers that we're going to see. It's not going to be as much of a development but definitely more of a yeah seeing how it's philosophy is a way of life how it's being developed and i think i've said this i've definitely said this before in this podcast but i always think this is funny maybe maybe i said this last time i can't remember i think last year i was talking to one of my professors who's who specializes in kind of roman history and stuff so i was talking to him and i was like oh do you know any good like roman philosophers and he's like "Nope." None of none of them are that great, and I don't know if I, I am misrepresenting a little of the context that came in. So sorry about that, but I think it's that's kind of a good way to look at it, and also kind of a bad way to look at it because, yeah, th- I wouldn't really say that they're philosophers in the sense that they're they're not really coming up with anything new. And I've definitely flipped about how how my view, like I've I always flip flop on how I think about these. Writers as philosophers or not. But that's something important to think about. I think, like, throughout our entire run as podcast hosts, we've really mostly looked at philosophers who develop really new ideas who are different from each other and who kind of maybe disagree about the past. I mean, you know, why are they writing if they're not offering something new? Um, And I think that we just kind of have to think about these thinkers differently. They're kind of thinking about questions that exist within. A system that's already been established. They're not necessarily turning away from something or or trying to alter anything big. Yeah. And, that,
0: and that's certainly not to say that they are not wise, right? Like if you think of, um, you know, a Taoist sage or a Zen Buddhist sage or something, uh, they're not coming up with new theories, but they're embodied, embodying that practice, honing that practice. And really kind of like through that practice, they become wiser about uh, that particular school of philosophy, and therefore become masters or sages in the Eastern tradition is what we call them. And really, that's what these uh, these Stoic thinkers are, right? And I think that that in and of itself is a philosophical practice, right? That's embodying a philosophical way of living because you are doing the things that philosophy does, which is. You're taking theories. You're testing them out. You're asking questions of them. You're seeing how well it fits experience. And uh, and I think I think that's definitely a philosophical activity.
1: Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit more about how this idea is and in, and in involved in Seneca's life specifically. But before we do that, I think we should talk a little bit about Seneca's life, going into detail about that and kind of the context of of Seneca to during his life and and kind of around it and what's preceding it, just so we have a better idea of of what's going on. Do you have anything else you want to add before we start this, Mr. Parsons? No, no, I think we're good. Hit it up. All right. So I think before this episode, Mr. Parsons and I were talking about how Seneca's birthday, birth date, I guess rather, is kind of a circuit date. There's nothing exactly, but we can kind of think of it at the early... Is it the early first century? Yeah, I, it's a it's a, it's yeah. somewhere it's in the early first century. I've seen it one BC, and then I think Mr. Parsons was saying he's he's seen it as uh, four CE before, um, and I've seen it uh, like anywhere between those dates. I think is just a
0: yeah. Well, one of the sources I read said uh, you know it's possible that Seneca and Jesus of Nazareth was born in the same yeah. year. Yeah. It's right around yeah, that time. So,
1: so just, just at the beginning of that time, and for any of those, uh, those of you who are listening who are big, Roman history buffs, you know this is kind of a big time in Roman history. Around 30 years before this, the first emperor of Rome at that time, Octavian, but around the time Seneca is born, it's going to be Augustus. The Republic of Rome has ended, and Augustus is, you know, he's the new emperor of Rome. It, the system is, is totally changing there's more emphasis, of course, on the one, Pater Patriae, who's the the father, father of the fatherlands, who's kind of in charge. who's building a lot of grandeur to Rome. Rome's population is fluctuating um, heavily at the time. Around, I think around, I forget exactly. Yeah, yeah. So Augustus is going to die in about 14 A.D. So that's when Seneca is going to be growing up when he's a young man. But throughout. You know, I would say throughout 44 BC to 14, when Augustus dies, that's when Augustus is establishing this Roman emperor, empire, and so it's certainly something that's that's rather new. I would say even till what is it, 64 AD, when the Great Fire of Rome happens, uh, there's still a lot mm-hmm. of development that's going on in 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 the Roman Empire. So I think when we're thinking about this time in Seneca's life, we're seeing a massive Whenever Seneca is alive, really, we're seeing this massive change in Roman society, in a core in- integral part of Roman identity about being a republic. And that's what's growing, uh, what uh, Seneca is growing up in. Yeah. I'm fairly certain that the Colosseum's not even built yet in Rome, something that is so um, so crucial to Roman identity at a later time. It, but it's just, a, a, the, I guess that doesn't really matter. But the, what I'm trying to say through all of this is this is a, both a key transition point in Roman history, in Roman time, and that's really going to be influencing mm-hmm. uh, Seneca a lot.
0: Yeah, it was an incredibly politically unstable time. It's hard for us to even really sort of wrap our minds around. Uh, you mentioned 44 BC earlier. Uh, that's the date that Julius Caesar was was assassinated. So Julius Caesar, of course, turns Rome on its head by overthrowing the previous guy and uh, upends the Republic system and declares himself dictator for life. And then he's assassinated three years later. I think it was three years. And then, uh, you know, civil war ensues. And then finally Augustus, like you said, comes to the throne and, and is a pretty solid emperor by all accounts. But after that, you had a slew of emperors in that first hundred years of empire that were really unstable and, (laughs) um, both mentally (laughs) And politically and so yeah so I mean that's that's the world that Seneca is living in it was a world of paranoia grasping for power and trying to figure out how this new system of Empire is working so all that's very important to especially uh, some of the emperors we're going to talk about about his life so to get on to it uh, you mentioned he was born roughly between four or maybe one BCE. He was born in Spain, what is today Cordoba, uh, which was a province of of Rome at the time and quite removed from all the politics. So being that his family was really well to do, no surprise here, Seneca was given a tutor by his father to help him become educated in the ways of rhetoric and logic and uh, ready to be a statesman. So he was given a, a stoic tutor by the name of Attalus and Seneca really enjoyed learning as a as a young child. But Attalus, who of course helped Seneca learn all the things that I mentioned before, like rhetoric, he was also very much so a philosopher. In one of his quotes about the purpose of learning philosophy, Attalus said, take away with him some one good thing every day. Every day, the purpose of philosophy is to take away some one good thing every day, that you should return home a sounder man or on the way to becoming sounder. And when Attalus is saying sounder, he's meaning virtuous. And we talked about that in the previous episode, the importance of the Stoic virtues. Seneca also found a lot of value in studying the philosopher Sextus, which was another uh, Stoic from whom he discovered like the Stoic practice of journaling a few minutes every evening before bed. Um, I can't, I think we mentioned in the previous episode, but journaling is a, a common Stoic practice. Marcus Aurelius does it in the morning. Seneca does it in the evening. So he picked that up from Sextus. So growing up, he was sort of infused, uh, or rather infused, not infused, um, influenced by Roman, Roman Stoic thinking.
1: Let me say something real quick about Attalus. That's an important guy for, as we'll see, for, for Seneca. How did, how did you say it, Mr. Parsons? Uh, 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 did you say it? Oh, I probably Attalus. mispronounced okay. it. I just, I just wanted to stay consistent. I was just looking at the Greek. I guess he's a Greek guy. Well, that's not
0: surprising yeah. either.
1: Well, anyway, Atalus was, he's a pretty interesting guy in a lot of ways. Apparently, I don't know if this is actually true, like much of this older, much of this these older writings, but Seneca in one of his other works, not one that we'll be talking about today, kind of describes his teacher. And for basically his teacher had all of his land stripped from him by this. Okay, well, we'll do a little bit of Roman history story time. Um, So after Augustus died, his, I think it was his son, or stepson, uh, Tiberius took over. And there's this very famous guy named Sejanus who was, I think we should think about him as basically like this very powerful bodyguard. He was the head of this group called the Praetorian Guard, who is basically the, yeah, the, the bodyguard, the secret service of of Roman emperors. And uh, Seginus was very, very powerful, and apparently Seginus took all of Attalus's property, and basically it says he was reduced to cultivating the ground. And I think when we're, we'll definitely see later in Seneca's life how much Seneca himself is going to be kind of screwed over by Roman, uh, Roman imperial power. And so probably how Seneca deals with this. Is going to be based very much on Attalus's own struggles with Roman imperial power.
0: You know, that's a great point. A lot of things that Seneca writes about is death and cruel fortune, as we could call it. And certainly a lot of that is informed by his youth and what he saw happen with Attalus and, you know, witnesses the fallout of power struggle or the fallout of, of the vice, if you will, of desiring power. Speaking of of cruel fortune, l- let me just run through a, a list of things that happens to him before he ends up with his ultimate emperor, if you will, the tutor of Nero. So, when he was a young man, around twenty CE, so he was about twenty four years of age, he was already in court in the in the government, working in the government, and he always was kind of not necessarily fragile with health, but he did have this sort of reoccurring respiratory issue. So around uh, 24 years of age, it was probably tuberculosis that he developed. And in order to try to recover from that, he went to Egypt where his uncle was a prefect. So this tells you how well connected his family was. His uncle was a prefect in Egypt. Uh, But he ends up staying 10 years there. And when he comes back on the return journey to, to Rome, his uncle dies in a shipwreck. And then also uh, saw who was once a very well-trusted military general. Sejanus, I suppose is how you say it. Is that who you were talking about earlier? Actually, they saw him uh, condemned by the Senate and he was torn to pieces in the mob in the street. So like, here's someone who is incredibly well-respected and had a tremendous amount of power, gets out of favor with the current emperor and then boom, uh, taken out. It was a time of paranoia, a time of violence, political turmoil. Uh, All under the reign of this new emperor after Augustus, Tiberius. It is under these conditions that Seneca took his first public office on returning from Egypt. Uh, He kept his head down through like this tumultuous reign of Tiberius and then Tiberius's successor Caligula, which was even crazier than Tiberius. But then Seneca loses his father in 39. He gets married in 40, which is happy times, but then he loses his first son uh, in in 41 the very next year. And then 21 days after burying his son, he was banished to the Isle of Corsica by the new emperor, Claudius, and he was 41 years old. We're not really sure why. There's some questions about maybe some infidelity he might have been involved with, but either way, it's for the For the first, I guess, 20 or so years of his professional life, it's pretty up and down, and and we go through three emperors. But when he was on the Isle of uh, Corsica, this was a really productive time for him in terms of his writing, both books and letters, and a lot of his famous Stoic writings comes from this time period. All right, it's off to you, Andrew, for Nero.
1: So someone extremely important in Seneca's later years is the future Emperor Nero. Now, before we talk about Nero, let's, let's go back a little bit and see how Nero is eligible for the throne, because it's, it's a little shady. So Nero is the son of Agrippina the Younger. Agrippina is the youngest sister of Caligula. Nero is like the great-grandson of Augustus, basically, and, and Tiberius. So he has some claim to the throne, but it's basically a little spotty. The main player how Nero gets to power is through basically some meddling his mom, Agrippina the Younger. When Nero was a young kid, this is probably the most important part for now. When Nero was a young guy, Agrippina hired Seneca to be the tutor of Nero. And from a lot of scholarship or whatever, I think we've, we've been able to tell that Nero is kind of like, I mean... <laughs> A lot of people probably are aware of this, um, but Nero was just kind of a crazy emperor. Like a lot of, like Mr. Parsons mentioned earlier, a lot of these emperors in this time were insane. They're just absolutely crazy. Nero fiddled while Rome was burning. And I don't know, nobody knows if that's true, blah, 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 blah. But I think that that's a good way of looking at how how crazy Nero was. So anyway, Seneca uh, came back, he was allowed to come back from his exile from Corsica after he was hired, basically, to become Nero's tutor. I think it's it was pretty pretty much said mm-hmm. that uh, Nero was like a pretty bad student under Seneca. Kind of reminds me of Alcibiades, who was kind of I'm not going to say taught by Socrates, but was in Socrates' circle and someone who Socrates really cared about. Nero not a not a great little little kid, but Seneca became one of Nero's advisors when Nero became emperor. And yeah, he was he was basically helping him out. Uh, Seneca was helping him become a pretty good emperor, I would say, at least at the beginning of Nero's term. Um, a lot of people... Nero wasn't really that bad of an emperor, um, at least at the beginning of his yeah, term. Yeah,
0: if, if I could interject here, I think Nero was either 11 or 12 when Seneca becomes his tutor. And then Nero becomes emperor at the age of 16. So Seneca really didn't have a lot of time to tutor the boy uh, as much as he would have liked to have. And, you know, the stoic virtues and trying to lay out a path for how to be a good king and all that sort of stuff. And you can imagine a 16 year old being emperor of Rome, too. Yeah, uh, I believe it's Agrippina who uh, had her husband Claudius poisoned to make room for Nero. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's why he becomes emperor at such a young age. So so like you said, uh, Seneca is an advisor for him. For many years afterwards, but like really didn't have the time, the groundwork, you know, to lay for him to hopefully be a more just ruler.
1: I don't want to spend too much time on on their relationship, but I think it is important because Seneca writes a few works. And I think some of his letters are kind of, no, I don't know. Uh, but definitely one of his works is kind of definitely adding Nero. I think it's like on anger or on clemency or something to show, to lay a groundwork for why the Stoic path was the right path. Anyway, as all things do, all good things come to an end. And so Seneca, like many of these people, apparently was caught up in a a conspiracy to kill Nero. Allegedly, it's actually very unlikely that uh, he was part of it. Nero ordered Seneca to kill himself, to uh, cut himself and to slash his veins, to die in a bathtub. There's a lot of famous art around that. But, you know, there's also this great philosophical tradition of tyrants, whoever that might be, having to kill themselves by s- sticking to their philosophy. So I think that's a pretty extensive background that we just gave. Mr. Parsons, do you have anything else to add before we jump into the philosophy of Nero? Yeah. Or, not of Nero. Right, not
0: of Nero. We don't want to study his philosophy. Although a very intriguing person. Yeah, I mean, you're you're totally right. Nero, as he went through his very short reign, which is only 11 years, uh, he became, well, maybe it's 12 years. Anyway, he became even more and more paranoid and was eliminating everyone that he considered a threat or an arrival. And so someone like Seneca, this happened to all kinds of people. Who worked closely with Nero and some of the other emperors too? That you know they were caught up in schemes. Uh, whether they were involved in those schemes or not, you know, is very questionable. And probably not a lot of people were accused of things they didn't even do, just so they could be eliminated because they were seen as a threat or a rival. So it's just really sad that Seneca, who was brought on to be this tutor, this mentor, probably he probably thought he would be very similar, uh, like Attalus, uh, like Attalus was to Seneca. Hopefully Seneca would be that for Nero, but it certainly didn't turn out that way. And I don't think at any fault of, uh, of Seneca's, which I know that way, I believe that weighed on him quite a lot. So if you, you know, like, if you look at the life of Seneca, very up and down, right? Like young, uh, grew up young, wealthy, but then tuberculosis and was gone for 10 years and then came back. And then was exiled and then came back and he's the tutor of Nero and everything goes horribly wrong and he's he's forced to commit suicide. That's how his life ended. So all of that will influence his works, which we're getting ready to talk about here in a minute. That's the sound of money. Fresh, printed money. money, 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 money. Oh boy, the weather outside, so nice. I think today's high is like 82 degrees and sunny it's like perfect grilling weather do you do you like to uh
1: do you like to have a good cookout i love a good cookout i really do i haven't had one in a while but i i do like them yeah gone are the cold days of winter it's time to
0: break out the the patio furniture and the grill get the swimming pool floaties
1: blown up oh yeah oh geez but now that i think about it I can't crack a cold one with the boys while grilling and watching a real football game on the television on the back deck because I don't have any patio furniture. You don't have any
0: patio furniture? Well, why would you? You're in a dorm. Yeah, I guess that would make sense. <laughs> it would. But hey, you know, I know there's public areas around there. And you know, if you wanted to have a cookout, hey, you're in luck because Zeno's Stoa Furniture Outlet has all your patio furniture needs covered.
1: Zeno, you mean the originator of the Stoic School of Philosophy? Oh, that's right. He taught philosophy on the Stoa, which is Greek for porch. Hey, I thought we were advertising patio
0: furniture. Eh, patio, porch, let's not get into semantics. After teaching so many long lessons to his students, sometimes Zeno just wanted to put up his feet, sit under an oversized umbrella, and chill by the pool. Zeno had a swimming pool? (laughs) probably not uh but he always wanted one dodge and he's told him no uh but but that didn't stop zeno (laughs)
1: from firing up the grill and cooking some dogs for his students well i'm excited about this spring weather and some outdoor lounging let's see uh what would i need
0: whatever you need zeno store furniture outlet has
1: got you covered Need a cooler the shape of a giant football to chill your brewskis in? How about a foldable chair so you can get your tan on? Or maybe a fancy patio set with fire pit for those mild evenings?
0: Oh, Zeno's Stoa Furniture Outlet has multiple locations. But like most philosophically inspired stores, Zeno's is located exclusively in Greece, but does ship internationally. Thank you so much, Zeno's Stoa Furniture Outlet, for sponsoring us this week. Uh, And we'd love to thank you, our Stoic listeners, for sponsoring us by... Listening and passing on Open Door Philosophy to all your friends, you know, when you're sitting around the, standing around the water cooler at work. Uh, I don't know that people actually do that, but you know, it's a part of our culture. And they're like, oh yeah, I was listening to this cool new podcast because everyone likes to sound smart when they say that. And you know, you feel like you need to jump in. You'd be like, hey guys, you got to check out Open Door Philosophy, a podcast about philosophy, making it accessible <laughs> for you. For the people, what is uh, the people in uh, in in Latin? Populos, something like that. Uh, populi. populi, populi for the for you I, the populi, or the poloi, hoi poloi. Ah, uh, the polis. <laughs> but hey, listen. In all seriousness, uh, we always thank you guys for listening. We think it's great that you do, and passing along would be fantastic. That is how you can sponsor us. But now, let's get back to our buddy Seneca.
1: So much of, I was reading this um, article about Seneca, and it was talking about how so much of Seneca's life, or how much Seneca's philosophy is informed by his life and the context around him. So I, I think that's why we spent so much time on the background and the context, because it's so integral on Seneca. Um, he would likely have been a completely, like most of us, I guess, a completely different person if he faced a different context. And it's that's why it's so important, especially for these Stoic philosophers, this context that they're in. So I, I guess we there's two big works that we're going to talk about, although he definitely has a little bit more. There's very famous, very short work, I believe, um, Seneca's On the Shortness of Life, and also a little bit of a longer one, But a very good one as well, Letters from a Stoic.
0: So no surprise that Seneca is very concerned about time and life and the shortness of life because of the health problems that he had and the political instability and seeing people getting assassinated left and right and getting exiled and all these sort of things. Obviously, a, a big question that all human beings have, no matter what their life situation is, is like, how should I live my life the best, right? And and oftentimes, you know, when people die uh, or we start thinking about death too much, you know, we start thinking about like, oh, geez, like I got to get on with living my life because life isn't long enough. And we're all very fortunate if we are relatively healthy and live out a what we would call a full life to probably somewhere between 75 and 90 or something like years old. But there are other people who, of course, have chronic diseases And that makes life very difficult for them. And of course, other people die unexpectedly. And that's tragic when that happens. And so this big question of like, how should I live my life best, especially given that it seems so short. So to start out, probably one of the most, there's a number of famous quotes from this particular work, but probably one of the most famous ones comes on the first page. And it's really almost like a thesis, right? So Seneca says, It's not that we have a short time to live, but that we waste a lot of it. Life is long enough, and a sufficiently generous amount has been given to us for the highest achievements if if it were all well invested. But when it is wasted in heedless luxury and spent on no good activity, we are forced at last by death's final constraint to realize that it has passed away before we knew it was passing. So right there at the outset, life is long if we know how to live it, right? So the question is, okay, well, great. That's great advice. It's very inspirational, my friend Seneca. So how do I do that, right? So, of course, a lot of that will involve stoic practice. So a quote I want to discuss between the two of us comes a couple pages later in the work. Seneca says, but learning how to live takes a whole life and, which may surprise you more, it takes a whole life to learn how to die. So here we go, Seneca and death. What do you think about that quote, Andrew?
1: It's a wild quote. One thing before we get into it, I think we've talked about this before, but there's this ever present notion in stoic philosophy of memento moron, mm-hmm. um, remembering death and kind of coming back to that idea. And so I think, you know, obviously that's present here. Like it takes a whole life to learn how to live um, and a whole life to learn how to die too. So obviously, very big quote about death. I think the quotes. I don't know. I mean, I do think the quote has a lot of lot of merit. I think it's probably true. And you know, I hate 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 harking on the context again. But I'm sure I'm sure uh, Seneca probably was thinking about an upcoming death a lot, especially uh, in the context of what he was seeing around him. So I think it makes a lot of sense. Very, very stoic quote. Like, if, if I saw this quote without a tag or an author, I could. I it's very penable to stoicism, and it, this is this is so encompassing of stoicism too, right? I was talking to a listener before this uh, episode, and you know, they're saying, you know, that's great, Andrew, that you are talking about stoicism, uh, but I don't really understand what stoicism is. And I think that one of the key aspects of stoicism is this notion of of death. And in thinking about, you know, not letting life slip by.
0: Yeah, it's a big theme in this work. And a question, I'd have to look up the date when Seneca wrote this, being that my birthday was last week. You know, I'm 49, and that's probably around the time that Seneca wrote this work. And so I have a few more miles on me (laughs) than I would have, you know, if I were in my young 20s, like you, Andrew. And it is interesting, you know, you look back on, I I always question whether or not this is like inevitable, right? Like the the silly things we do in youth and and we look back, we're like, oh, geez, I wasted that time. I don't know if that's wasted time, depending on what activities you involve yourself in. But it, it does seem that like the older you get, the more things do kind of slow down, if you will. Like life kind of slows down a bit. And you experience a lot of more things that perhaps you don't as a younger person or hopefully don't, such as death. You know, one of my cousins just passed away last week and, uh, and one of my good childhood friends, her mother passed away like two or three weeks ago. So there's some like different perspectives on life that comes with that type of experience, you know, death and tragedy and things like that. And that, that offers a different perspective that perhaps someone in their teens or their early twenties or even late twenties doesn't have. So learning how to live takes a, a whole life. There is this notion of like the arc of human experience and what a person kind of goes through in a normal lifetime, that sort of arc where you have youth and then career building, family building, retirement, and then old age. That's obviously a pretty pretty quick description of an arc of a human life. But I kind of get what he's saying. Learning how to live takes a whole life. You can read lots of books, but I don't know that the knowledge that's in a book about growing older is as effective as say experience
1: I feel like I can't really talk much about life, but I think just from from my perspective, like I think it does help to think about i don't know i agree I definitely agree my life does feel like it's flying by very quickly, mm. and so I think that's one of the things that was really appealing to me about stoic philosophy was was this idea? It, almost exactly from this quote. I think thinking about death is very grounding in a lot of ways and not just my own. And so I think it is something that very much helps set my priorities in, 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 in line when I do think about it. But it is one of those universal truths. One of the reasons I, I wanted to study philosophy in the first place was was literally because I wanted to figure out how to live a better life or live a good life. But I do definitely agree it's not going to be this simple. I'm not going to figure it in four years. If I do a PhD, I'm not going to figure out in those six years either. It's going to take a whole life, and I could rant on about that subject, but uh, it's unnecessary.
0: No, I mean, I, th- I think these are really profound thoughts, and perspectives on living. You know, there is there is something to like. You know you you got you got to have some fun. You got to live it up, if you will. You know, when you're younger, and even when you get older, of course, too. But what exactly those particular activities are and how meaningful they are to your experience, is all very debatable, and, and that's why Seneca is having us think about these things other than one day you wake up and you're 50 and you're like, "Oh my gosh, like my entire life has just flown by." And he addresses that uh, earlier in the, in the book. Uh, one of the quotes he says, he, he's talking about all the, all the uh, the virtues that can lead us towards living a better life he says. But among the worst offenders, I count those who spend all their time in drinking and lust. For these are the worst preoccupations of all. Other people, even if they are possessed by an illusory semblance of glory, suffer from at least a respectable delusion. So he's talking about, you know, the things that we we catch uh, ourselves in. Moderation is one of the virtues. And of course, something like drinking heavily or... Being consumed with lust and sex and things like that are pleasurable in the moment, but ultimately become empty pleasures uh, as time goes on. So he asks us to be mindful of those kind of things.
1: So here's another quote from On the Shortness of Life. Seneca writes Some time has passed. He, the philosopher, grasps bit in his recollection. Time is present, he uses it. Time is to come, he anticipates it. This combination of all things into one gives him a long life, but life is very short and anxious for those who forget the past, neglect the present, and fear the future.
0: Yeah, so as a, as a young person, Andrew, who's an uh, undergraduate and you're thinking about uh, the future, whether you go to do grad school or, or whatever, does this resonate with you? Do you sometimes get in your head too much about fearing of the future?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think it's it's very easy to do. Um, and even if I, I mean, I think like, I don't know if I could get away from that. Like, I, I feel like if I, even if I was this perfect stoic, well, I guess then I wouldn't. But if I, even if I was like this great stoic, I'd probably still be fearing for my future. So I don't know if it's reasonable, but it's, it definitely sounds like a nice little quote. That's why I was laughing. Like, I don't know.
0: Yeah. You know, here's this issue of balance here, I think, right? Like we need to be aware of our future and decisions that we make in the future will affect our, our lives and all those kind of things. Fear of the future, you know, fear is a different, a different thing. I think, you know, I certainly know it's true of my life at times. I've, I've just gotten way too inside my head thinking about things that really I have no control over. And most of those things are in the future. Or have already occurred in the past. Like I can't change the past and I can't predict the future. So really, you know, what What do we have? Well, we have the present. And so if you get to, I think these are all kind of interrelated, right? Like if you fear the future too much, if you spend too much time worrying over the future, you're obviously going to neglect the present, right? Because the future is not here yet. And so, but you're worrying about the future and the present. And so fear of the future neglects the present. But he also says like we shouldn't forget the past. But I don't. I also, you know, like the future. I don't think that means dwell on the past, dwell on regrets, things like that. No. But be aware of the past and how that past has impacted you as a person. Probably very likely how Seneca was aware of his past and how that impacted him.
1: You know, this quote. I laughed. I laughed after I read it. Uh, That might get edited out, but (laughs) I or it might not. That's up to you, man. But let me know. It It's such like a it's such like a self-help quote, you know, mm. and I think that the, this is like one of the reasons why stoicism has become so popular because it quotes like this do do very much seem in, in a self-help kind of way. You know, that's not to say there's anything wrong with it because there's not I don't think there is at least, but it's just I don't know. It's just a, it's just a little funny and you can see you can see from a quote like this. I mean, it's a beautifully written quote, right? It's beautiful. No, I think that's I a, a really
0: valid point, Andrew. Like these stoics have very quotable quotes that are inspirational. I mean, it, it doesn't take long for you to just Google, you know, any of these stoic thinkers we've been talking about and you're going to find articles about how my husband passed away and Marcus Aurelius got me through it, you know, and things like that because C- it is inspirational, right? Like like another one here uh, from the same work ab- about living now and time. Seneca says But putting things off is the biggest waste of time. It snatches away each day as it comes and denies us the present by promising the future. The greatest obstacle to living is expectancy, which hangs upon tomorrow and loses today. What are you looking at? To what goal are you straining? The whole future lies in uncertainty. Live immediately. And, you know, you hear that and you're like, yes, carpe diem, baby. I'm going to go out and do all the things. (laughs) And it's funny. Yeah. And so like, like being inspired, I think is important, you know? Yeah. But you got to do something more with that inspiration. I think there's an entire system behind stoicism. So if that's a gateway to help people consider what it is to live a good life, then, then fantastic. But if it's just great quotes that provide you with temporary enthusiasm, that's not going to go a, a long ways.
1: Yeah, totally agree. I don't want to talk, uh, we can hold off for a different episode on my problems with stoicism. And I think I talked a little bit about them last time, but I think that's just something important to keep in mind. These things that stoics are are saying, they're not meant to be easy. They're not meant to be some quote that you put up on your wall or on your phone screen that it's, it's like a practice. It's tough. It's tough to think this. It's very tough to internalize what Seneca is saying in all of these quotes. And that's only when you're going to get the benefit from them. And that's why he says, like, it takes a whole life to learn how to live. Mm-hmm. So it's not easy. It's not something you can do very easily. It's not something you can do by changing your daily routine once or twice. It's It, it requires a life.
0: And I think that, go back to that original quote, you know, where it says, Uh, learning how to live takes a whole life that second half of it it takes a whole life to learn how to die it's kind of saying the same thing it's like you don't want to get to the end of your life and 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 regret that you haven't truly lived you know as, as the old saying goes but learning how to die what does Seneca really mean by that you know it's sort of inspirational at the outset but like what does he really mean by learning how to die And a lot of it has to do with adhering to these very strict stoic practices and mindsets, which are difficult mindsets, like thinking about death all the time. You know, Epictetus famously says, you know, when you kiss your child goodbye, tell yourself that you're kissing a mortal and that they could die. These are heavy things. And the purpose of all that is, of course, is for you to have like a detachment to a a degree and really focus on what's important. Um, And not losing your mind over things. But yeah, you're right, Andrew. Like these are, these are, although inspirational at the outset, they're very challenging if we truly like attempt to apply them to our lives.
1: So now we're turning to Letters from a Stoic. I think that one's a little bit more popular than On the Shortness of Life, but popularity doesn't matter. There's a really good quote in my opinion from this work and it is Seneca writes there are more things likely to frighten us than there are to crush us we suffer more often in imagination than in reality mm. again i chuckle very self-helpy i guess there's nothing wrong with that too like that's a ad hominem fallacy if i'm saying it's wrong because of that and i'm not saying there's anything wrong with it but and that's another stoic thing too right like we often create more pain, more suffering um, in our minds than we'll actually face in reality. So that's also another aspect of Stoicism, not letting our mind psych us out, uh, cause us more pain than than it has to.
0: Right, and I think that goes back to the idea of reason as our guiding aspect of our, of our mind. I think we mentioned that in the previous episode. There's such an emphasis on reason coming from the Greek tradition that's a part of Stoicism, not to like completely dismiss the emotions, of course, but that if we're going to get caught up in like some drama inside of our head, you know, we suffer more in imagination than in reality. Uh, a popular word that people use, you know, if you want to use that self helpy lingo is catastrophizing, right? Is thinking like whatever's going to happen is going to be so terrible and awful that you completely lose yourself in it. And, you know, if we think about those types of moments, when when those moments actually occur, no, they're not nearly as, as uh, cataclysmic as, as we think they are. Uh, it makes me think also from this other, back to his focus on bad fortune and catastrophizing, I guess. Another quote from Letters from a Stoic. He says, uh, It is in times of security that the spirit should be preparing itself to deal with difficult times. While fortune is bestowing fares on it, then is the time for it to be strengthened against her rebuffs. So I do think, I don't know if it's quite contradictory. You know, it says we suffer more in imagination than in reality. But at the same time, the Stoic practice calls us to imagine uh, the difficult times that might be ahead of us to prepare ourselves mentally for those situations. Oh, that like, do you think that's contradictory, Andrew? How do we square that?
1: No, I don't.
0: I mean, if it's all memento mori, you know, like... Like, how do you worry? How do you think about your own death while
1: at the same time not losing your mind over it? Well, I think the difference kind of lies in purpose, even though that's not the right word either. When we're thinking about the future in the way that Stoics think about the future and want us to think about the future, that's a way for us to be grounded in the present. And when we're thinking just kind of going by and living life without thinking about the future with what could go wrong, we're not really living life. We're just kind of living life on autopilot. And so they're really more of exercises to help ground us in the present, to help us be appreciative of what we have and to prepare us possibly for bad things that go wrong. But really just, I think, to ground us in the future, to make sure our intentions are right. And I think, you know, that this kind of works in a few ways, but one of them too is if we do this in the present and something bad does happen into the future, then we're not looking back on our past And wishing we did something else differently. We're very grounded. So it's a way of grounding ourselves all the time to be in the present.
0: Yeah, and I think another thing to add to this previous episode, we mentioned Stoics' attempt to follow nature. And if you think about nature, rather not nature like trees and bushes and stuff, but the nature of things, is that uh, nature really has no opinion on what's tragic and what's good. Nature's going to do what nature's going to do. Uh, The functions of life the function of our planet will do what it's naturally called to do with or without our influence. And so, you know, death is a part of that natural cycle. So when it comes to like not worrying about things in the future, w- worry about the things that perhaps you have control over. And then the other, th- the things that you don't have control over, which would be things that act according to nature, then you just got to let that go yep. way easier said than done. <laughs>
1: Yeah, for sure. Which for sure. Uh,
0: which kind of brings us to this next quote, huh?
1: Yeah, I think this is a really funny quote. It's what need is there to weep over parts of life? The whole of it calls for tears. <laughs> well, thanks, Seneca. Some people think Seneca was a uh, tragedian, and so you know his language, his prose is, or yeah, his prose is very it's very dramatic. Mm. I think that's something that we can tell. So so the the last, uh, and that's why it's fun to read. Like it's a good time. Uh, maybe not as witty as, as uh, someone we'll see in our future, maybe not as serious as someone else, but very dramatic.
0: Yeah, that's something to point out too at this point, right? Like, uh, and maybe we mentioned it in the previous episode, all three of these stoic thinkers we're going to look at are very different in terms of their personality and how they write, you know? Seneca's a bit you know, more straightforward and, and tragic, like you said, whereas Epictetus is like a former slave and he really shoots from the hip, you know, when, <laughs> when he's talking and everything. And his writing's far less formal. Another quote, that i'm thinking of in relation to this previous one is another one that's very dramatic seneca says sometimes even to live is an act of courage Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. if you think about the tragedies in his life which he had plenty you know uh i can see probably why he would have that particular opinion
1: yeah for sure he's he's a dramatic guy that's that's i think all we have to say
0: Here's another quote that deals kind of with virtues and popular thinking, right? So this one, he's always, we saw this earlier, he's always saying to do things like avoid luxury and avoid fads and all that stuff, which is really comical coming from him because he had outrageous uh, fortune, uh, not fortune in terms of luck, but but money is very well well to do even in his exile, right? But anyway, he says here in another letter, the simple way of life need not be a crude one. The standard which I accept is this. One's life should be a compromise between the ideal and the popular morality. I think that's an interesting one. One's life should be a compromise between the ideal and the popular morality. Because like as a Stoic, wouldn't you think, you know, you you would try to follow the ideal, but maybe compromise is more realistic?
1: No, no, no. You know, it's, it sounds it sounds kind of like Mill. When Mill's writing about utilitarianism, he says, you can live this utilitarian life, but you need to use your kind of culture's view of morality as a roadmap for your way of living a utilitarian life. You can't just be a, a cynic like the the cynics in the old term and kind of just throw yourself on the streets and be be and not kind of conform to society because I think that's an important part about stoicism. You have to be a, a member of society. Mm-hmm. You have to, to an extent, follow their rules. I think not not as much of a, a, it's more of a guide map. I think it's more of a guide map like Mill. Like you need to follow the laws. You need to follow some conceptions of morality. But, you know, you also have to balance that with what you think is true. I think here, again, we see this uh, concept of
0: balance. Right? And you think maybe back to Aristotle's golden mean. There's got to be... The middle, I don't know if the middle ground is always preferable, but it seems like, at least in this quote, in some things, it's the good advice.
1: I think the big thing, we've talked a lot about Seneca. I think the two big things to take away, or maybe three, a lot of Seneca's work is influenced by the time that he lives in, both personally and culturally. So I think that makes it, it makes him a very attractive read to people who are going through a lot of hard times. Seneca, we talked about a a key component to Seneca is thinking about death, thinking about life, shortness of life, how to live a good life. That's that's why I do think he is a good kind of introduction to Stoicism in in our journey through it. We also talked about how his Stoicism is not something that's completely new, but he's thinking about how to be a Stoic, and I think that's why it relates to his times. He's not developing anything new, but he's thinking about stoicism in his time that he's living in and things that he's going through. And that really helps us. You know, that's that's good because we can see it through his perspective of things. Do you have anything else to, you want to add, Mr. Parsons?
0: No, I think that's it. You know, other than well, I think I mentioned it earlier, that the three writers we're looking at are very different. Seneca even writes in a very formal tone according to the translation that I read, the translator notes. And so some of our other Stoics do not write in such a formal tone. So if you do pick up any of these works and you're like, ah, Seneca's not really doing it for me, uh, that's hardly the only Stoic that you can reference. And his writing may be a a little more formal than you prefer. Although I would say his letters are probably less formal than some of his specific written works, like On the Shortness of Life anyway if, if you pick up Seneca and he's not for you uh, but you're still interested in Stoicism just know that there are other ones that we will introduce soon you can check them out yourself yes okay. all right
1: well all right everyone thank you so much for listening to this episode on Seneca we really enjoyed talking about Stoicism so uh, I think these episodes will be a little bit longer, but hopefully you'll enjoy our excitement.
0: Yeah, and being that we enjoy it so much, you know, like, just let us know what you're thinking about some of these Stoic ideas. We'd be happy to engage with you and have a dialogue about it. So you can catch us on uh, at our email, opendoorphilosophy at gmail.com. Uh, but you can also find us on Instagram at philosophy and uh, my Twitter, which is d underscore. We do have an official Open Door Philosophy Twitter, but most of that gets redirected to me,
1: so check us out there. We'd also love if you would like, well, I don't know if you can like, uh, but you can definitely subscribe and leave a positive review on this episode, so we would really appreciate that for you to do. And we'd also like to give a quick shout-out to Kevin McLeod for the use of his free music. You know, it's very groovy, so thank you again for, for choosing the path that you did, Kevin. Absolutely. So, everyone,
0: have a great week or two till we hear from you again, or till you hear from us again, and, you know, remember, <laughs> uh, whenever your life is in need of some, what is it, some philosophy? Yeah, whenever your life is in need of some philosophy, the door is always open. See you guys later. What if because like Rice is like, you know, such a smart school, what if you guys for forego the actual like track and just you got a bunch of stationary bikes in a room and like <laughs> in your heads, you had a bike race?
1: <laughs> That'd be funny. But I think people like the the wipeout moments. You oh, know? well, sure. <laughs> and then, yeah, people wipe out. It, and also a big thing from this. I can't do this. Like I said, it's called beer bike. So they used to chug. The riders used to chug like a can of beer, <laughs> awesome. and then get on the bike. But now, you know, I guess they can't do that because underage drinking and stuff. So now, what they do is they have people called chuggers who chug a like a huge bottle of water, like mo- probably a twenty four ounce bottle of water as fast as they can. Yeah. You can ch- chug beer if you are over age, I think, but I don't think anybody does that. But yeah, they like chug like a huge bottle of water. And so that's always very interesting to watch, too.
0: It it seems like they've taken all the fun out of it, if I'm to be honest.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. I don't know. I think I think like. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that
0: riding bike while while drunk is recommendable, but. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, I don't know how Seneca would have felt about all of that. He'd probably say go for it. Sounds like a great time. (laughs) Well I guess we'll see. We'll we'll see see. on today's episode. Okay, well let's
1: get to it. (laughs)